Welcome back to the Human or Athlete podcast with this week's guest, Laura Dees. She is a skeleton slider, double Olympian and bronze medalist at Pyeongchang. We just had a brilliant conversation on going back to the foundations of what it means to just be a human being, to fall back on human connection and what are you passionate about. When all the things in the athlete world go awry and are difficult, it's so important to fall back on these foundations and simplify your life. I hope you enjoy the episode. Please check out our social media at Human or Athlete. I'm here with Laura Dees. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, straight off the bat, jump in. What would you say is the most important maybe mental skill or value to have as an athlete? I think the thing that's got me furthest in my career is probably determination or like grit, whatever you want to call it, sort of that um, just not wanting to to give up because Mm. there's been quite a few times over the years, like I've been lucky enough to have quite a long career now and there's definitely been points along the way where I could very easily have just said, right, you know, it's too much, I've had enough now. Um, and actually just refu- just keeping my head down, working hard and refusing to stop is, um, I think, has got me quite a long way over the mm-hmm. years. And I love it. I think there's this real blend in, in sport of that hard work grit versus the talent and versus the almost like the general love for it. And it's a really tricky balance to always find because sometimes you can go down the hard route, uh, the hard work route and lose your love for it. And then also you spend too much time focusing on the love for it and you're missing out on the little gains you can get here and there do you was like do you work on finding that balance I think that's so true so like with with the skeleton program it tends to be very all-encompassing so mm-hmm. it takes over your life and I think it's very easy to um sort of not have anything else going on and and that makes it very intense mm-hmm. and it's great when it's going well but if you're going through a tough time with skeleton and you've not got anything else to sort of either distract you or um kind of entertain yourself with then mm-hmm. then that can definitely make it a lot harder um but I think like that that what you were saying about that um the balance between talent and hard work is um is really interesting as well because I would probably say I I think I initially got picked for skeleton through it was through a talent search mm-hmm. so um I obviously had certain attributes that were important for skeleton but I think beyond that once I was in the program it was definitely the fact that I was willing to just grind and work really really hard that got me um to where I am now mm-hmm. it's um yeah it's a very cliche kind of like argument and stuff like that do you say that when you got into that place where you were working hard and stuff like that do you acknowledge how the talent that you got there or that had got you there or was it like all I'm focused on right now is improving on what I've got right now improving 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 or was it so I think the interesting thing for me in that situation was that we were, um, so the, the cohort of athletes that I was training with, we'd been brought in through a specific talent scheme for skeleton. So we'd been picked um, out of thousands of people to do skeleton and we were being aimed at the next Olympic Games, which at the time was uh, Sochi 2014. How did that work in terms of like that talent search like how was what was the idea behind that so initially uh, when I heard about it it was billed as a scheme to find female athletes between the ages of I think it was 18 to 25 okay. um, and it didn't specify which sports in the sort of overview you just mm-hmm. um, had to be I think I can't remember the parameters exactly but I think maybe county level or above in something mm-hmm. um, and then so you sort of entered your height and weight and so on and um, I got asked to go along to the Manchester trials because that was the closest one to where I was living. Um, And you basically just had to throw yourself into all of these tests. Mm -hmm. Um, And you didn't find out until afterwards, uh, after a day of testing, um, and what sports, if any, might be interested in you. So you had Mm -hmm. to just kind of go there with the attitude, I'm just going to try everything. Um, so I remember giving it all on a cycling, a max cycling test mm-hmm. and thinking, oh God, if this is what cycling's like, I'm not sure I want it. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, it was a really strange day because you had to just give 100% to everything, but not really mm-hmm. knowing what that might mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a couple of weeks after doing that, I got a letter in the post saying, please come to the University of Bath and try pushing a skeleton sled. Cause mm-hmm. of course we've got the dry push track here. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it kind of went from there. So I think it was a mixture of, 
um, I was told afterwards, sprint speed and vertical jump. Mm -hmm. And I know my vertical jump is terrible. (laughs) I've been told this many times. (laughs) So it must have been that on the day my sprint speed was quite good. Um, But what was interesting as well is I think they took into account the fact that um, people's training history was very different as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, compared to someone maybe that came from a track and field background, I'd, I'd never done any sort of sprint training or mm-hmm. I was more of like a middle long distance runner. Okay. So I think they probably took that into account as well when mm-hmm. they were looking at people's um, data. So yeah, we, by the time I actually got picked for this program, um, I'd been through a year of testing and they'd got us down from, I think hundreds of people down to four athletes. Oh, yeah. So it was very like, very intense, very targeted. And, you know, we were we knew that we were there because we had the attributes for the sport already. So there was no mm-hmm. question about that. And then it was really like, how hard are you willing to work mm-hmm. to, to try and get to this goal? And it was very clearly defined that that Olympics was the goal. I mean, we even had it printed out on, on our t-shirts that mm. Sochi 2014 was written on everything that we trained in. So there was no getting around that. I was very, um, very cut and dried that that's what we were aiming for. And um, I remember we were, um, given a talk quite early on when we'd been picked and the performance director at the time said to us I believe that at least one person in this room will win an Olympic medal and I just remember that's really stuck with me that's over a decade Mm. ago but I remember exactly where I was sitting and I remember thinking well if that's if that's what I can get by putting my all into this then that's what I'm going to do and it kind of went from there you said it lasted like a whole year of that trial phase Mm in comparison like i've had situations in football where i'm on trial for four six weeks that's absolute hell there is nothing like that you're like i guess obviously your career's on the line you like your livelihood you're dealing with the pressure day in day out but obviously it's almost it's more like intense than any normal training block or any training Absolutely. schedule you're on how did you find that, especially for two years? Yeah, it was difficult. It was initially it was sort of camps. So you'd come down for two weeks at a time, get mm. beasted in the gym, get tested on aptitude stuff and hope that you got invited back again and the numbers would get smaller each time. Mm. Um, and then once we were sort of technically in the programme, so we did we did one week on ice at the end of this sort of initial year of testing. And that was what was sort of the final phase that would, would either get you on the programme or you'd be... Um, said you know thanks but no thanks kind of thing Mm. so once you'd slid on ice for the first time and you were in the program then you were based at the University of Bath and we were absolutely beasted because Mm. it was a fast track program as well so to get us physically up to where we needed to be in time it was just it was hell in some ways it was such hard work Um, I remember very clearly being coming home from training one day and falling asleep on the sofa and waking up and being so stiff from training that I couldn't get up without help. I was literally stuck on the sofa. Um, So yeah, it was really, really hard. And then you also had the the dynamic of working with teammates, Mm -hmm. which was really interesting because on the one hand, you're all working together towards the same thing because you all want to achieve this thing of going to the Olympics, but also they're the same people that you're also competing against for Mm -hmm. the spots. So I think getting your head around that idea of individuals within a team was quite an interesting one as well and I think some people got to grips with that better than others and and used that as a as a source of strength I suppose Um, but yeah it had it was definitely a very high pressure environment it had the potential to be quite negative if Mm -hmm. we'd let it Mm -hmm. luckily it wasn't most of the time how did you deal with it mentally I think it was as I said the goal was very clearly defined for Mm -hmm. us already so I didn't ever have to wonder why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, because I knew why I was doing it. It was just a case of just, yeah, getting yourself through those gym sessions. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain element of just stubbornness mm-hmm. and competitiveness. Well, that person's doing it, so I need to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also feeling like a bit of a race against time. So I guess just literally some days it would just be rep by rep, set mm-hmm. by set, and not really thinking any further than that because yeah. otherwise it might get a bit much. Um, but the other aspect to it as well is that the gym stuff is one thing, but learning the sport of skeleton was, was the other Mm -hmm. part of it. And I think something which some athletes found very difficult 
was the fact that you were going from being pretty good at something because otherwise you wouldn't have been selected into the program to being a complete beginner mm. and that sort of like being okay with being bad at something for a while is actually really difficult as well yeah. in a competitive mm-hmm. environment like knowing that you don't know anything and you've just got to try and throw yourself into something which is you know can be dangerous mm-hmm. it's high speed high g forces and you know you get physically battered when mm-hmm. you're a beginner as well hitting walls and mm-hmm. um, crashing and so on so there was that side of it as well and I think to be honest more so than the gym stuff that's what really um, created the strong bond between us as athletes was mm-hmm. that sort of uh, sort of survival type <laughs> feeling of like we've just got to get through this yeah. um, and you know you you travel around from track to track because obviously there's all these different places you've mm-hmm. got to learn the tracks you'd feel like you just got somewhere and mastered something and then you'd be on a new track which you mm-hmm. know you were a beginner at again so it definitely put you through it um, that beginner mindset I'd say like it's one of the most I think important things to grow as a person let alone like in your sport and then obviously you're coming into a sport which obviously the society the culture at the moment is if you're not doing it at eight years old you're not going to be very good at it let alone how old were you when you started all this I think I was 19 19 yeah like, it's almost like oh well late starter or whatever into a sport that you want to get to you want to win olympic medals at yeah that almost like doesn't it doesn't add up to be doing it at that i age. know it's a strange combination of of things like that mm-hmm. and i think when particularly when you start we first started competing we uh, the first circuit that we raced on was europa cup which mm-hmm. is sort of like the entry level international racing um and yeah, like you say, we were competing against people that had been doing, if not skeleton, they've been doing an ice sport since they were kids, mm-hmm. since they were maybe five years old. Um, so that sort of mentality of having to believe that you can beat all these people that have been doing it for so mm-hmm. much longer than you, you did. It, we did have to have a kind of a sense of confidence bordering on arrogance probably to just walk into the changing rooms and think i know none of these people know who i am but i'm still aiming to win this race Mm -hmm. um and i think now you know i've got a lot of friends on circuit and we talk about you know the old days when we first started and i think people thought that we were really like stuck up really arrogant and but it was just because we were under this intense pressure to improve quickly Mm -hmm. and we were being told day in day out you know you're not you're not here on holiday you're here Mm -hmm. to learn and win races and I think at that level at that time quite a few people were essentially doing it as they were doing it Mm part-time they were doing it on an amateur basis whereas we were there you know fully funded with Mm -hmm. coaching staff and cutting edge equipment and uh, sort of from nowhere Mm -hmm. um so we probably did rub people up the wrong way but we were so much in just like a a bubble of of we need to fast track ourselves through this mm-hmm. that I don't think we really noticed. Yeah. And it's only really looking back that I think, yeah, we must have come across as really arrogant. <laughs> <laughs> I think to do anything at that level, you almost have to have that naive, like, I, I'm better than everyone else, even if it's not true or realistic at that time. But if you don't at least start there, then, like, I mean, I, I guess, again, it's a really intricate and kind of careful balance between that naive confidence and being open to learning and improving in that beginner mindset. Yeah. And I think athletes are like, we get, obviously we get attached to I'm good at this or I'm good at that or whatever. And then like, for example, I went and did boxing like a year ago. I was so humbled so quickly. (laughs) Like so quickly. I was like, shit, like I'm really not very good at this. This is, why do I think I'm good at sport or I'm good at picking up these things? And I was like getting beaten up by like a 14 year old. (laughs) And it was, re- and it's like this is a lot harder to put my ego aside, yeah, and then just openly learn because you need both to be good at, or to get to that level. But it's obviously you can't, you, you need, yeah, it's just a tough balance. It is, and I think that's where the right guidance is really important. You mm-hmm. need someone that's kind of helping you through that process because, like you say, you're especially on the time frame that we were working on. We were still beginners when we mm-hmm. were racing when we first yeah. started racing. So you spend all week feeling like a beginner and, and learning the basics. And then at the end of the week, you've got to go and put a race performance together. Mm. So that like having to shift between that the learning mindset yeah. and the racing mm-hmm. mindset. I mean, that's something that you still do on the skeleton circuit because, you know, I'm sure it's the same with a lot of sports, but every different venue you go to is a completely different environment. Mm-hmm. The track's different. Um you know similar to formula one like all the tracks have different characteristics the curves are different and on top of that they can shape the ice differently as well Mm -hmm. so it's never the same twice um so 
at the beginning of every race week you're figuring it out and then by friday you've got to yeah. you've got to put down that race performance so i think that's definitely a learned skill that we we had to get to grips with quite mm-hmm. quickly in obviously a skeleton run perfectionism's everything how how do you deal with that perfectionism on those weekends at the end of the week when you're racing so my first ever coach told me something which was really helpful which was it's not about being perfect it's about making the least mistakes Mm -hmm. and if you do make a mistake it's the person that gets back online quickest Mm -hmm. because I think again coming from that beginner background it was it was about minimizing mistakes rather than eliminating them completely Mm -hmm. and the thing with skeleton as well is you've got to remain so relaxed on the sled like there's Mm -hmm. speed in being relaxed which Mm -hmm. is really weird because it's very hard to quantify but I know that if you're tense on the sled it slows you down Mm -hmm. so you have to be able to accept mistakes or accept you know you always know where you want to be on the track you know if i'm coming into this corner i know i want to be four inches off the right wall for instance Mm -hmm. i might be six inches off the right wall and i've just got to accept that and adapt in the corner make Mm -hmm. the change in the corner so i can keep the sled running forward Mm -hmm. because if i try and make a mistake to uh, make a change too abruptly then i'm going to skid it or i'm going to make the compound the issue and make it worse Mm -hmm. so it was more about learning to get back online quickly and sort of absorb any mistakes that you make mm-hmm. rather than eliminate them completely because i think if we if we come at it from the idea of perfection we'd have just constantly been frustrated mm-hmm. and like even now i've been doing the sport for 12 years mm-hmm. and there's still probably only done five what i would consider perfect runs in my mm-hmm. life so yeah you're constantly searching for those mm-hmm. yeah those little those little differences and just accepting that there no two runs are ever going to be the same i think like i want to say it was like gary v who said put out as many eights and nine out of tens as you possibly can yeah and don't worry about the 10 out of 10 yeah absolutely i think that's spot on and and the mentality that i took into my first olympics in pyeongchang was um i don't need to be perfect i just need to be consistently Mm -hmm. good Mm -hmm. because the the biggest challenge of the olympic games is that it's four runs and all four Mm -hmm. heats count uh, normally in a skeleton race it's two runs on one day mm-hmm. so at the games you've got to do two good runs you're going to go home sleep on it come back and do two more good runs oh. and that mentally is so so mm-hmm. difficult and so I knew that I might not be the fastest person I'm not going to put down the four fastest runs but I know that if I can do four above average runs Mm -hmm. the likelihood of everybody else doing that as well is really low Mm -hmm. so that was always my that was kind of my main goal was be the most consistent and Mm -hmm. I think actually when you look at the numbers I think I was up there as one of the most consistent Mm -hmm. sliders and I basically just didn't have a bad run Mm -hmm. Um, and in the end that was enough for a medal but I think that was the right mentality for me to take in because it took away from that idea of perfectionism it was Mm -hmm. just about keeping that average high no I love it so so you, did you or did, did you make Sochi or not then? No, so that was really tough because mm-hmm. obviously we have been brought into the programme with this idea of that's the Olympics you're being aimed for. How long did you have to prepare for Sochi? So like we, I think we started in 2009 or 10 on mm-hmm. ice. I think it was the 9-10 season. Um, so yeah, four years basically mm-hmm. to go from beginner to Olympic. <laughs> final level yeah. so yeah it was always going to be a big ask and obviously Lizzie stepped up to that and okay. she um won gold in Sochi mm-hmm. um, but yeah I missed out I wasn't ready I wasn't at the level that I needed to be at mm-hmm. to get on World Cup for yeah. that season um and at the time that was really tough because I felt like I failed because mm. you know I hadn't done what it said on the tin yeah. um but actually I think looking back it was probably the best thing for me because I wasn't ready. I wasn't gonna go and win a medal anyway. Mm-hmm. So it probably would have ended up being maybe a negative experience. Yeah. Um and actually that sort of the bitterness of not being there, that sort of that really spurred me on. And mm-hmm. I had some really like the the years following not going to Sochi were probably my best years mm-hmm. on World Cup because I really pushed myself. Mm-hmm. When you're in that, I guess, dark place following a, you know, a failure in that moment. Mm. Where were you at mentally? How did you climb out of that hole? I remember thinking, well, <laughs> I had a very, uh, very nice message from Lizzie, which at the time, it really hit home. So she was out at the games, obviously doing doing very well, and I was at home. And she sent me a message saying, I wish we, I wish we could have been doing this together. I wish you were out here mm-hmm. with me. And that was 
you know, gets you right in the feels. Mm-hmm. And then, so it made it even more special that in Pyeongchang we were there together because mm-hmm. it was like the end of this long road and we'd, we'd finally managed to get to an Olympics together. Um, but I remember thinking after that, just trying to flip it and turn it into an advantage. I remember thinking everyone else is going to be foot off the gas, taking it easy because it's the year after the games um, and people aren't going to be training as hard. Mm-hmm. And this is where I can I can turn it to my advantage. So I yeah. So I'm going to use this summer. I'm going to train as if this is my Olympic year. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the best shape I was ever in because I just had this steely determination mm-hmm. to just prove a point and get out there and yeah, just really show what I could do. So yeah, that I just had that attitude of just work harder than everyone else, mm-hmm. um, and it'll it'll work out. It is, I guess, in a way, and I talk about it quite a lot on here, using that dark energy. Yeah, it's absolutely. The stuff that has a you know bad reputation and obviously if you lose control of it it leads to doing unhealthy you know having unhealthy coping mechanisms to then control that problem but did you manage to yeah to use that positively you used obviously that year onwards did you could you hold on to it throughout the the four years of preparation or was it like i think as i so i like that phrase dark energy i haven't heard that before but like Mm -hmm. it's so true it's really powerful stuff if you can harness it in the right way Mm -hmm. and i think i did that after sochi um Mm -hmm. because i said i came into the that the the year following that was the first year i earned my world cup spot Mm -hmm. and started to race on world cup and actually i won a silver medal in my second ever world cup race um yeah because i just i just had this sort of attitude of give it everything you've got nothing to lose just show everyone what you can do um and then i think as as i'd sort of felt like i'd proven myself and okay became an established athlete on world cup won a couple of medals Mm -hmm. then i kind of probably that faded out a little bit because Mm -hmm. then it was just about maintaining the level that i was at i didn't feel like i had something to prove in the same way Mm -hmm. although you know you always you're always wanting to aim high but yeah, it was definitely most intense that summer straight mm-hmm. after Sochi. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's again if it can be managed, having both that love for what you do, but also that that darkness and being able to have both is what makes you like truly a really or allows you to get the best out of yourself at yeah. any level in a way. And it's just such such an important part to having both. I totally agree, and like that determination that I spoke about right at the start. Mm-hmm. I think that's what fuels that a lot of Mm -hmm. the time it's either something really positive that you're trying to do again reinforce Mm -hmm. um or yeah you're you're avenging something (laughs) and it's like channeling that into determination like if those are the power sources yeah you're using it in that way take me to pyeongchang what was like the build-up to that where were you at wait like do you have expectations did you yeah leading into that it was really interesting because obviously this, the landscape at the time was that Lizzie was the defending gold medalist. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd won a few World Cup medals and was sort of seen as the outside chance, mm-hmm. bit of a dark horse maybe, but not really sure. Mm-hmm. Whereas obviously everyone knew who Lizzie was. She had this massive pressure of, of defending her title. Um, and by that point in time, Lizzie and I were pretty close. We'd We'd done seasons together on World Cup as well by that point. Um, and so I was very aware that I was sort of flying under the radar a little bit. And I used that to my advantage sort of mentally, um, taking the pressure off myself a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I remember in a lot of the interviews leading up to Pyeongchang, where people would ask me what my expectations were. And I would say, I'm going there to win a medal. Mm-hmm. And you could tell that people were thinking, really? you know that doesn't seem like you know a realistic goal and I think truly I me and maybe my coach my my main ice coach were probably the only people that actually believed I could win a medal Mm -hmm. and so that self-belief um and wanting to wanting to prove that there was more than one athlete in the program that could win a medal Mm -hmm. you know um quite honestly that was that was what really drove me um and it was a really interesting season because we didn't have the most straightforward build-up to the games. I remember it was a bit rocky. I had, I think, I had some good early results, mm-hmm. and then it all sort of—it wasn't terrible. But I think we were sort of maybe getting top tens, top twelves, mm-hmm. um, and we weren't—you know—we certainly weren't winning medals week yep. in, week out. But we kind of had this inner steel that we just knew that when it came to it 
we were going to rise to the occasion mm. and everything that we do to peak at an Olympic Games was going to come into play. Do you have any idea of where that inner steel came from? <laughs> the impossible question. It was, I think it, for me, a lot of it was the confidence in what had gone before. Mm-hmm. So I knew that, you know, the, the team that was going to be in Pyeongchang with me um, or had been with me along along the journey, a lot of them had already had success before because obviously we'd we had the gold medal in Sochi um Amy's gold in Vancouver we had a silver before that we had a bronze Mm -hmm. before that so it was kind of this thing of if you just do everything that you're supposed to then Mm -hmm. why not Mm -hmm. um yeah so it was just sort of feeling like I was so to call it sort of people use the phrase medal factory it didn't feel like that because it didn't feel like a certainty but I just kind of had this feeling that if I did everything that I was supposed to, that I would put myself in a position where I had a very mm-hmm. good chance of winning a medal. Yeah. Um, and as well, like Lizzie was a great mentor at the time as well, because she had obviously been to a previous game. She'd, um, so if I you know, had any questions or I wasn't sure about anything about the Olympic environment, like knowing that she was there and that no question was a stupid question was really helpful as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the stuff she was saying about how it was, you know, it might be a, it might be the Olympic Games, but it's all the same people that you race week in, week out on World mm-hmm. Cup, things like that. It was all very helpful. So mm-hmm. I did feel like I was sort of part of a team that really knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, I, I just had to, to a certain extent, I felt like I just had to turn up and not do anything wrong mm-hmm. and it would all be okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's essentially what happened. I mean, there's some sort of, I guess, comfort from that in that I think about other sports and you think about if you get to a final, you get to the, the big stage and that way you normally a lot of the time playing, let's say, football example, or even boxing or something, you're up against the scariest, like the best people, and there's like was an element of fear, mm-hmm. added pressure. You know, you're the you're going up against the you know, the big dogs less, less in that way. And obviously you've got the comfort of racing against the same people. Is there still that whole thing of I guess for you it's been eight years for I'm not sure how long a skeleton run is minute about a minute yeah Yeah. so about four minutes four eight years for four minutes mm. does that like night before is it anything any any of that coming in or is it okay I've done this before or like how did you how did you deal with that I think so looking back on it now um when you look at how tight the margins were so over four runs the difference between me and fourth place was two hundredths of a second <laughs> so less than a hundred of a second per run um, was the difference between winning a medal and not winning a medal mm-hmm. which when I think back blows my mind and I think if I thought about it in those terms at the time it would have been too much yeah. to take mm-hmm. because you know one shoelace out of place could have mm-hmm. cost me a medal um, but it, to a certain extent it's kind of the same in any in any skeleton race because they're all measured down to the hundredth of a second and you tend to just go into your sort of mental processes and not I don't anyway really think about it in terms of I don't equate it to a time okay so I think it'd be very easy to sort of say something like oh I went you know slightly wrong into that corner that probably cost me a tenth of a second but Mm. you can't really think about it like that in real time you can obviously when you look back and review something you can say well that cost me a bit that cost me a bit but I think if you overthink it too much in the moment it can be very detrimental. And like I said, like you have to be relaxed on the sled. So How you do you approach it then? You just have your plan. Like okay. So for me, I'm a very kinesthetic slider. So for me, it's all about how it feels. I know how something should feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I respond to pressure cues mainly mm-hmm. when I'm sliding, although obviously I can, I can see most of the time, um, apart from in high-pressure corners. Uh, so I tend to just try through the, the week when I'm training, sort of build a bit of a rhythm of mm-hmm. how it should feel. Um, so that, and then I sort of visualize that over and over again. So I, I have this idea of, of what it should feel like. Mm -hmm. And then, so in the moment, if it doesn't feel like that, like hopefully then I can quickly make a decision and, and adjust. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I just try and sort of build that picture of how it should all feel. And it becomes a bit of a rhythm, um, and almost like a bit of a, a dance in a way, because you're, you're trying to just interact with the sled and the ice and it should feel relaxed, um and just try and get as close to what you consider the best each time mm-hmm. um knowing that it's never going to be the same four times in a row mm-hmm. um and then i guess afterwards then you zoom out and you think about the times but yeah i i, I try not to break it down into 
you know hundredths of a second too often because yeah you just start to overthink everything did you in going into the last run did you know what was going on did you know at the end of the run if you'd done it uh so i was lying fourth going into the so i was fourth overnight Mm -hmm. and then i was still fourth before the last run Mm -hmm. Um, and I quite enjoyed being fourth overnight because I felt like I've got nothing to lose mm-hmm. um, and everything to gain. Yeah. So it was quite a nice position to be in, sort of chasing. Did you sleep? I did actually sleep remarkably well, yeah. <laughs> it was. It, it, I think it suited me, the timings, because I'm a bit of a night owl and okay. the races were starting at sort of 8.30pm, I oh, think. Okay. So we weren't done yeah. until midnight. Um, so that I think that suited me. Um, and then, so I think... Yeah, so I was still sat in fourth position going into the last run. And it was just that that thing I was saying about the consistency. That was the only thing I was really thinking about was just like, it doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to be in that ballpark mm-hmm. again. Um, and and I think when, when I'm thinking like that, then I can rely on instinct. Mm-hmm. I think if I consciously try and think my way down the track all the time, I never slide that well like yeah. that. It almost has to be... Um, sort of set it and forget it like it has to be an inbuilt thing Mm -hmm. that you instinctively know where you need to be so I think I just sort of trusted that I that that Mm -hmm. was in there Mm -hmm. and didn't try and tried not to sort of overthink it too much and then it was a waiting game I got over the finish line I knew it was a good run then there were three athletes to go in front of me and that's when the that that was like probably the most intense (laughs) eight minutes of my life because I was I was in the leader's box and you've got um, you're you're watching the screen of the other mm-hmm. athletes come down after you. I've got a stand opposite me, full of my friends and family, and like it's almost all Brits, which mm-hmm. is amazing because a lot of Lizzie's friends are out there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't remember what order. I think it was was it Lizzie next? There was so there were three athletes to yeah. go, and the final it was it was um, a German athlete, and she came down in front of me, and I thought, okay fine <laughs> all right there's two athletes left to go and then lizzie came down and stayed in front as well and then i thought oh i'm gonna finish fourth and then i started to think then it then it was like i felt like i was on a real knife edge of mm. this could be great or this could be awful because no yeah. one wants to finish fourth at the yeah. olympics um so that two minutes when the final slider came down um who was in lying in first position and I could see that it wasn't a good run. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you kind of know where where someone's dropping off and making mm-hmm. mistakes. And I could see I could see her making mistakes on the way down, but I didn't really want to believe that it was gonna, yeah. gonna work, uh, that she was gonna drop far enough for me to go up into third. Um, and I could see the, the splits, the split times yeah. coming down mm-hmm. the track. And I was like, it's getting really close. It's getting really close. But the, the last split, uh, in Pyeongchang is like a long uphill section mm-hmm. and it's really hard to know what's going to happen um, so I didn't want to believe it and I was just like my whole being was just focused on this like <laughs> number in the corner of the screen mm-hmm. um, and whether the rank three or four was going to come up mm-hmm. and I just saw the number four and then it just went berserk because yeah. obviously Lizzie then knew she was the champion again I knew I'd won a medal mm-hmm all the Brits went crazy and it was just the most surreal, yeah, surreal mm-hmm. moment of my life. Was it relief? Was there... Yeah, a huge, huge amount relief? of relief. This, I think that... I think the fact that I was so close to coming forth made it, um, yeah, the relief even more intense. And then you've just got the fact that, like, four years of pressure is finally mm-hmm. off your shoulders um, mm-hmm. and you've not let anyone down and everyone's there and seeing you and... Yeah, it's just the most crazy, intense mix of emotions. Mm-hmm. I also remember being really um, feeling very sorry for Janine, mm-hmm. who dropped behind me because mm-hmm. she'd been in a medal position through the whole race. And mm-hmm. like, obviously, it's not, it's no one's medal until the mm-hmm. race is over. But it felt like it was hers to lose, mm-hmm. and she and she lost it. And so I was very aware that whilst I was having the best two moments of my life, mm-hmm. Janine was probably having the worst two minutes of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just went absolutely bonkers. <laughs> it's it. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I can't even imagine it. It must be one of, everyone says it's one of the craziest feelings you'll ever have. Is there, do you, can you, can you see the difference between like, obviously you probably can feel it, but to realise how much weight was on your shoulders over that time, do you realise like the pressure that you had put on yourself or obviously parts of it coming from your environment? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was a lot of inherent pressure anyway from mm-hmm. being in this program, and um, like we hadn't not won a medal the mm-hmm. whole time the sport had been in the Olympics. So yeah. I was carrying that, um, probably not to the extent that Lizzie was, mm-hmm. um, but then also you could say that she'd already won a medal, so she was already Olympic champion yeah. anyway. Um, and so, yeah, the, the pressure was incredible. And I think the, I remember it feeling like going down a tunnel and just like feeling like you're in this tiny, tiny tunnel and they're almost mm. being, there's like a pinprick of light at the end, but you can't mm. really see it. And then the closer you get to Olympic final day, the light's getting bigger and you can mm-hmm. see that you can see that the end is in sight, but um yeah it's just you're in a pressure cooker and I think looking back on it now I think I did a really good job of just going into my own Mm -hmm. little world almost and um I think the team around me did a fantastic job of keeping the pressures of the outside world away as well I think in 2018 I mean one of the differences between Pyeongchang and Beijing is that social media wasn't as much of a part of our Mm -hmm. life as it is now Mm -hmm. um and it was almost seen as a bit optional Whereas now it feels like it's just part of life. Yeah. So we we shut out quite a lot of external noise, mm-hmm. which I think was a, a good move because there was a lot of um, stuff in the press about our suits mm. at the time. Um, and I think our performance director took the decision that just to keep us away from it as much mm-hmm. as possible. And I think that really helped. There was a couple of moments when it was particularly surreal and, I, and then I got a realisation of, how many people were paying attention to what we were doing, which mm-hmm. was a bit scary. I remember coming home from uh, one of the days of official training, um, coming back to Team GB HQ, and Claire Balding was talking about our official training times mm-hmm. on the BBC. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, oh God this is really surreal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of wish I hadn't seen it. But yeah, yeah most of the time we were just in that little bubble mm-hmm. and the outside world didn't really come mm-hmm. into it until afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a way it sounds claustrophobic in a way, like this in that tunnel kind of thing. Like it's a really, it's a really difficult thing because I think of when you're an athlete and you've got to live with that. It's like it's not something you want, like you should be living with. In, I guess in some ways because mm-hmm. it's it's not, it's it's just incredibly tiring, draining, all these different things, and over the length of period that you know yours is obviously probably building up and up over that four years and if it related to a football season it's like nine ten months of just week in week out and so it's a really like difficult it's a difficult place to be and I don't think it gets enough of like I get this spoken enough about because you're living in this place which every minute of the other day your nervous system is like full alert survival mode in a way like the sympathetic nervous system full like awoken all the time it's almost like yeah, you're on survival mode 24-7. And that takes so, so much out of you. Was there like a come down after the Olympics with that? Yeah, absolutely, there was. And I think I totally underestimated how... I mean, the, so the last two Olympics I've had couldn't have been more different, obviously coming home with a medal in Pyeongchang mm-hmm. and then just recently coming home from Beijing mm-hmm. with a really disappointing result. But what's really interesting is I feel very similar so the come down, I don't think is necessarily related to to the outcome. Mm-hmm. I think, as you said, it's more a response to this kind of the f- release of this intense pressure and tension that you almost get so used to it that you forget that it's there until yeah. it's gone. Mm-hmm. And then you think, wow, how did I do that? Mm-hmm. Just just kind of dealing like firefighting constantly and, and yeah, dealing with that pressure. Um, and it's really strange when it's not there anymore and you have to sort of try and recalibrate how you think and what you're doing and how you define yourself and yeah it's it's a very interesting period of time for sure I find it so interesting how like I guess a part of the podcast the purpose of it is how they deal how athletes deal with it because I guess my goal is to get to a place where you can detach like still out of awareness though and you can go you can relax your nervous system you can relax into what it is but that's anything anything but easy and then some people are really good at zooming out and just like going back to their family and friends don't think I can do that (laughs) but then like in yourself you've kind of just almost like blurred the rest of it on gone blinkers into that place and I think it's just so interesting those coping mechanisms to it and what's possible to breed a way of dealing with it that other people can 
like without I guess what's the healthiest way of doing it because Copenhagen's are great until they don't work yeah absolutely um I think compartmentalizing is mm-hmm. very important and I think what's very difficult or I've ha- at points in time I found very dif- difficult is separating how I define myself as mm-hmm. a person versus how I define myself as an athlete mm-hmm. and I think very often and I think probably social media hasn't helped with this is mm-hmm. that you, you are one and you seem want to be one and the same thing and mm-hmm. I think separating yourself as a person from the performance and not attaching your self-worth to the outcome is very important but also very very difficult mm-hmm. um and I particularly struggled with that this year because mm-hmm. I think coming off the off the back of success in Pyeongchang I unlike in Pyeongchang in the build-up I had this perception of how other people saw me as an athlete Mm -hmm. which I felt like I had to live up to Mm -hmm. so you know I was thinking you know I I wasn't in good form and I was thinking people are going to be wondering what's happened to me people Mm -hmm. are going to think that I can't slide anymore that I've lost my skill set um that I'm not mentally strong enough to deal with it and and all of these things and but a lot of it was linked to how I was worried how people were perceiving me, mm-hmm. um, which was something that I, like I said, I didn't really have to deal with in the lead up to Pyeongchang very much because that was I was much more of an underdog then. Um, yeah, so that was that was quite tricky this season, and it got progressively worse mm-hmm. <laughs> up until the Christmas break. Um, at which point, I was able to reset mentally. How did you do that? Um, so I actually sought help um, from a hypnotherapist. Okay. Um, because it was, I'd got to the point where I almost, I didn't know how to be, um, an athlete anymore. It it was, it was like I was turning up at the track to race and I didn't, I didn't know how to do it. I was really struggling to just go into like, like normally you just go into autopilot, your normal Mm -hmm. processes. And for some reason I was just really struggling to do that. Um, so I, I, I needed, I felt like I needed some sort of intervention to help me get back to sort of almost just like reset, draw a line, get back to where I was before. And almost to be able to put that, the racing in perspective. Because I think what had happened is that the racing had seeped into my whole life. Mm-hmm. And when I turned up at the track, I felt like I was putting my whole life on the line yeah. instead of just racing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I feel like I, I felt like I needed to get that back in in proportion and in mm-hmm. perspective and it worked really well for me mm-hmm. um so i think even though the second half of the season the results were still really tough actually i was framing it a lot better in my head and a lot mm-hmm. uh, in a healthier way um which kind of got me through those few mm-hmm. races in, yeah. uh, into the olympics well the way i kind of see it is if like you've got if you've got like where where the balance is on one side you need like kind of like a laser going to that and that i guess that balance and where you want to be is that riding off instinct right completely the direct line between you that present moment and the goal of being as quickly as quickly as quick as you can and but when that kind of stuff comes in whether it be internal and it be your own fear or your own anxieties your own connection to this is my life this is who i am and then you've got the external ones of the press and then you've got external ones of you know people putting this pressure on you or saying this and that and it's just blocking that or putting filters on it Mm. making it weaker and weaker to connect to that present moment where where you're relaxed where you can let go and be obviously at your best and at your quickest and I think that so many of them are self-created and obviously so many of them come with the sport and it's the ability to kind of unlock them and let go of them and it's one of the it's just such an interesting thing as to how it is about completely letting go Mm. but the second you get one block in the way you get worried about that block and then you put that, that necessarily obviously compounds the next one and the next one. Yeah. And it's one of the having, I can completely relate in that way is that it just takes over and it makes that connection to that present moment where you get to that point where you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. It's, it's so difficult. Yeah. And it's what gets me is it, it just multiplies. And because of the pressure that exists, it's just getting heavier and heavier. I to- totally agree. And I think skeleton, I'm sure you can say this about lots of other sports as well, but I feel like with skeleton, there's nowhere to hide. It's just mm. you on the sled. There's not a, there's not a team of people with you, and it it exposes you. Mm. And I think that's like I felt like there was a real microscope on on everything I was doing. And 
I think that the analogy that you gave about like there being layers of like barriers between mm-hmm. you and like that really pure performance that's so true because when when you're at your best on a skeleton sled you're not thinking about anything you're mm-hmm. completely in the moment you don't have any hang-ups and trying to find that when off the sled you're dealing with so much mm-hmm. is incredibly difficult and I think also the mental energy of trying to bring yourself to a point where you can give a great performance every week is exhausting mm-hmm. I like going through that sort of sort of treadmill of having a tough week of training and then having to try and turn that around and, and find an amazing performance mm-hmm. when things aren't going great mm-hmm. that's really really it takes a huge amount of energy it's the the hardest thing I'm sure you can relate is when you you're forcing it because you want it but you want it too much and by forcing it you're tense on the sled yeah absolutely if moment. you try too hard it doesn't work either <laughs> it's, the, it's like the biggest irony <laughs> yeah there is yeah so you've got to you know to be a really good skeleton athlete you've got to be so um like attention to detail is so important and yet when you're on the sled you almost can't care about it too mm-hmm. much because then you're not relaxed you're not letting it run mm-hmm. so try yeah trying to find that state of mind when you're you know wading through issues off the sled is very mm. hard very what hard. was i guess without obviously the details but like the hypnotherapy was there like did you kind of get to places where i guess to what comes to my mind is that also that like meditative state was there like different things that you brought in in those moments um that did make that difference it was kind of um imagining myself in a place sort of being able to visualize myself in a good place on Mm -hmm. the sled Mm -hmm. uh, I think just tricking my brain into knowing that it was possible to do again Um, and almost just reset that fight or flight um, thing that I'd got into I think every time I got to the track it just felt like a massively uh, like a huge mountain to climb like Mm -hmm. like a huge very loaded situation of I've got to nail this or or my whole world is going to collapse and it somehow um was able to help me put those things back in perspective and it mm-hmm. wasn't so much about it to try and make skeleton not the be all and end all mm-hmm. in order to make it better mm-hmm. um and trying yeah just getting back to that point where it was just just sliding it yeah. wasn't everything um which yeah is a bit of a paradox when you that's the one thing that you're focusing on being better but <laughs> yeah i just almost had to sort of reset myself um and find that sort of balanced center again mm-hmm. where things were yeah in the right perspective how do you do you see yourself behind the athlete Ooh, that's an interesting question i'm not used to thinking of myself as anything other than an athlete mm-hmm. um and i think that's sometimes why time away from a sport can be really helpful because mm-hmm. it sort of reframes you as a person you mm-hmm. think oh yeah i'm quite a good friend as well or like mm-hmm. oh I'm, I'm okay at being a wife and mm-hmm. uh auntie and all those things <laughs> so i think yeah that's that's a part of the thing for me now i think post games is sort of reconnecting with all that mm-hmm. and i think covid hasn't helped as well because yeah. we've been so isolated from each other um that's made things feel even more intense but i think definitely that's something that i need to work on is how do i define myself outside of being a skeleton athlete mm-hmm. because it's i think it's a dangerous position to put yourself in where you don't have anything else um like yeah the fact that i'm finding it difficult to answer that question i think tells you everything you need (laughs) to know (laughs) yeah i mean i think like the again another way that we kind of look at it and talk about probably way too often on here is is that if those foundations are built on the sport what you do which is why it's so interesting to be an athlete because it's intensified into such a short space of time like obviously loads of people are going through a lot of pressure a lot of different things on the line jobs on the line um, and never devaluing that, but there's almost time. There's you know there's time that's passed. Everything's you're being thrown into situations that last a minute, mm-hmm. and yeah. with everything on that, so it intensifies it. And that's why it's so athletes in ten, fifteen years experience a huge amount that people experience in sixty years over a job and what they do. And so it's very easy to to get attached to those foundations of this is what I do. But when there's one storm comes and another storm comes and like, I guess in a monsoon where it doesn't seem like you can come out of it and you've got nothing under those foundations of that athlete, that's when it's the scariest bit because then you're like panicking and that's when 
Yeah, because it, it, it becomes your be-all and end-all, and mm-hmm. that's the position I got myself into, was every time I went to the track mm-hmm. to slide, I felt like I was defining myself mm-hmm. over and over again as an athlete mm-hmm. on every single run. Um, and I think possibly we, we need to do a better job of reminding athletes that they're people as well, yeah. because I think I certainly had a perception when I came into this sport, and that's not necessarily anyone else's responsibility other than mine, I, I I'm not sure, but... I felt like I wasn't allowed to be anything other than an athlete mm-hmm. because it was showing if, if I were to put my energy and time into anything else, it would be seen as not taking the sport seriously. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably quite common. I think that's the culture at the moment. Yeah. Um, is that you, yeah, you have to be seen to be yeah. doing it every Brilliant hour of every, every day. day. Exactly. Um, and time away from the sport is seen as a, a negative or mm-hmm. time doing something else is seen as a negative mm-hmm. but actually I think having something else going for you that's not just your sport can be massively beneficial completely agree do you is that something that you're focusing on then over the next like obviously you've finished the Olympic cycle is that something over the next you know as you prepare to carry on is that something that you're really looking to find more of a balance with and improve on and how are you going to go about that Definitely. I think I think naturally as you get older, you you probably want to start thinking about having other things in your life as mm-hmm. well. I think just be, for me, uh, seeing people around me um, move on to different life stages, you know, so that obviously there's a phase where everyone's getting married and there's a phase where everyone's having children. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you sort of end up benchmarking your own life a little bit around mm-hmm. what your friends and family are doing. So... I think you know that naturally I'm looking around me and lots of people have started families and, and I'm not at that stage yet. So um, yeah, I'm definitely trying to have a wider view on things and mm-hmm. not just be an athlete. Um, and yeah, look look to what do what you know what am I passionate about? What what mm-hmm. do I want to do with the rest of my life? Because mm-hmm. you know even even long sporting careers are short really mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things. And you know <laughs> what am I going to do for the rest of my life? Mm-hmm. You know and I I think the thing one of the things that sport has told me is that I want to I want to do something that challenges me mm-hmm. I want to do something that's not necessarily a nine to five mm-hmm. um so trying to find something that fits all those boxes mm-hmm. um is yeah it's probably the next big challenge that I've got on the horizon while still both. wanting to slide for a while <laughs> yeah it's uh I think that question of what am I passionate about and being able to say it's not specifically in one lane of a sport is incredible advice and a great question for anyone at the highest level or simply playing out of enjoyment because or approaching it even outside of sport I think that's such a one we forget because we get caught up in oh this is the next thing this is the next job this is the next um you know the rat race the next part of the rat race and suddenly reframing it then opens up and you've got a lot more to life than your job or how do I make it something that is my job or whatever it is and I think that that is a great question for anyone listening at any part and stage of their life. Mm, yeah. um, thank you very, very much for coming on. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. The last question, we kind of talked about it a bit already, but the last question we ask at every episode is, what makes you more than a skeleton slider? What makes you human? Oh, that is a very interesting and difficult question. I think... I think it's probably the relationships that I've built mm-hmm. both around the sport and also outside of the sport. Um, my teammates are some of my best friends and they've seen me through some very tough times. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that that's it. It's, it's building those connections with people um, and yeah, having a loving and supportive friends and family gets you through everything. The human connection is probably that's it. Yeah, Absolutely. the foundation to everything I'd agree with massively. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you.